Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined yet again by Bruce Momjian. How you doing, Bruce? Hey, very good. Good to be with you again. Oh, th- thanks again for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was so interesting. The last episode we did you, with you talking about like unlocking the query planner and looking more into like the relational database kernels. Because uh, I, I do think it's one of those things where, you know, you take for granted kind of this black box that just works for you. Uh, and like when we uncovered the query planner stuff and like looking into how it actually works, it was, I thought for me, it was definitely interesting and kind of fulfilling and understand, you know, understanding that was great. And I think for the audience, it was good too. Um, and I think today it'd be really interesting, actually, if you don't mind, maybe us going more into like the concurrency and locking and, and really kind of how a database, like a relational database handles multiple actions occurring at the same time. Um, because I do think something like that is, again, it's like we take it for granted. We kind of just assume, yeah, no, the database will handle that. Uh, and it's it's something you should really take into consideration, especially as, you know, it's not a free lunch. You know, there are certain bits that are very, you know, once you start doing more and getting more involved, you know, you, you do really want to understand like kind of space and performance um, characteristics of it. Uh, so I thought maybe the first question would be great to ask is actually what is concurrency? Yeah, I, I agree with you on the on understanding how it works. You know, you look at you look at a lot of things that people make or, or build and, and you look, gee, how does that work? You know, how does, how does an engine work? Or, you know, how does it, how does a, uh, a TV work or how does streaming video work? You know, these are all kind of really interesting questions. And, um, you know, I think there's a natural curiosity that you want to understand how something works. Um, and also I think, yeah, you're, you're a better user or better, uh, 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 more effective if you understand uh, some of the background of how stuff works inside. I think, I think concurrency is and, and is part of that. Um, frankly, uh, I often give talks about you know why use a database. You know, you almost you start from from really basics and and you say, well, why should I use a relational database? Why would I not use a non-relational database? Why wouldn't I use a flat file or or some kind of ISAM setup, or you know, some homegrown storage system, um, and a lot of that um, really revolves around the kind of services that the relational system provides. And I think one of the most invisible services is concurrency. Um, you know, when you're sitting in an SQL prompt and you're sort of typing a query in and hitting enter, <laughs> getting the result back. Uh, it's really not obvious that you, that the system has done anything for you in terms of concurrency. You gave it a request and, and it gave you the result back. What's the big deal? But um, in, in fact, when you when you start to, to understand that there are perhaps dozens or hundreds, uh, potentially thousands of, of people who are doing this exact same type of query at the exact same time, um, it is somewhat magical that they're all able to return accurate and consistent results uh, without really any user interaction at all. Um, it just kind of happens. <laughs> and, and if you've ever tried to do a database that that isn't relational or, or a case where you're trying to do something with flat files in concurrency, which is really, you know, really horrendous in, in, in terms of what can be done. Um, you know, you start to realize that oh, gee, the the solution that works for one user just does not work when uh, concurrency gets involved. And frankly, 
um, when I, you know, when I start to look at new projects or as a consultant, when I used to work on, on, on projects, you know, I used to, in the back of my mind say, you know, if this is a single user application, uh, and there are a good number of those out there, you know, the complexity is X, but if, if it's a multi-user application, um, you know, the complexity is three or four X, uh, just, just adding the need to have multiple people in that application at the same time really changes a lot of the behavior of and and adds a huge amount of complexity that that just didn't exist before um so in a way you know concurrency for databases is successful when it's invisible um it's the kind of thing where you know when they go up to sing the national anthem you just expect them to do it perfectly every time and and, and if they don't then you notice it uh you know it, again it's, it's sort of like if you make the job look easy then you succeeded and if you make it look hard you haven't uh, and there actually are some databases that do make concurrency look hard and 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 you know they they do get sort of a ding uh when you compare them to databases like postgres which you know, making currency look very easy. Um, and, and everyone's like, oh, gee, it doesn't have to be kind of hard. It can actually be something that I almost never have to think about. Um, but of course, as, data, as database internals people, we're thinking about this all the time. Well, I think that's really interesting because it really does then kind of mirror the kind of query planner discussion we spoke about last time where, you know, you kind of take for granted and it's like a good database obviously is then hiding this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that exactly is exactly you're right. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, <clears throat> the best query plan optimizer is one that you never know about, or you never have to understand. You never have to look at an explain plan or 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 optimize because it does everything perfectly all the time. Um, and 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 this is the similar kind of thing. The the goal of the database is to get out of the way and allow people to write very simple requests. Um, that can be happening, you know, dozens of times simultaneously or hundreds or thousands of times simultaneously and to return results that are consistent no matter what else is going on in the database, whether, you know, 20 people are updating and 20 people are reading at the same time or 2,000 are doing the same. Um, that is supposed to happen in a way that uh, nobody really under nobody really sees the effects of anyone else doing anything. Um the results are always fast. The results are always accurate. Um, any changes that are being made to the database, uh, you know, are, are sort of papered over and you always get a consistent result. And that's that's really the, the goal of concurrency is that you want to provide consistent results to users without with a minimal amount of, of overhead or blocking or slowness related to other activity that's happening on the system. Um, you know, it, when you when you think back, you know, 30, say, 40 years, um, you know, prior to maybe the 70s, uh, most of the, a lot of the operating systems, or certainly the 50s, were single user, right? And the goal of the newer operating systems, you know, Linux and Unix are, are just some examples um, of multi-user operating systems and the goal of a multi-user operating system was to allow multiple people to use the hardware at the same time in a transparent way so each user really felt they were the only user on the system 
And that's exactly what happens in databases where your your goal is to present something where each user feels they are the only person on the database. The, the difference is that in an operating system, you're basically you know, arbitrating use of hardware and memory, um, particularly CPU among these multiple people, giving them time slices of, of CPU, giving them uh, some you know, segments of memory. In a database, um, there's even a, a tighter commingling of users because you have some users who may be updating rows that other people are reading. They're updating different rows and other people are reading other rows and there's indexes involved and, and joins and so forth. And um, concurrency is even, I would say, even more intertangled um, in a database sometimes than it is in an operating system. Yeah, because I was going to say like that, you know, the dream then is to be able to use like, say, you know, obviously in the case of like they say a database is to be able to use it. Everyone's using it. Everyone's updating. Everyone's inserting. Everyone's, you know, reading and they're all getting the latest and greatest and there's no problems. Uh, but obviously you say it's not a free lunch and there are going to, you know, the, the issue is say if I'm updating something that someone else is trying to read or they're updating something and I'm trying to update something at the same time, it's the exact same thing. What, what wins out? Um, I'm just wondering like what other, you know, before kind of, you know, I know obviously we're going to go on to what, what Postgres uses, but before that, you know, the, the other ways of solving this are like through locking and things like that. I'm just wondering like, what was your experience with those and, and, and the pros and cons of such an approach? Yeah, you know, I, I, I would love to say that, you know, I was a genius in this area, uh, you know, from when I was in my 20s, but, you know, or my 30s, but I, I definitely wasn't. I, you know, a lot of, a lot of the learning I've done is, is looking at, at how Postgres has come upon a lot of these challenges and a lot of the, the problems are problems that you don't normally think of, you know, as a user of a database. And I was an application programmer for 12 years in the 90s. And um, I didn't really think, I think, a lot of times about some of the complexities of what we had to do. But, you know, at that time, I was an Ingress user and an Informix user. And um, I remember, uh, you know, writing database applications and and, and normal applications seem to run fine. You would get the occasional case where somebody kind of had left a screen open and, and the rest of the staff were kind of stymied. <laughs> like they had, they, they had left something open or a particular record and um, I would get a call. I, I, at that point, I was a consultant for law firms, and there was a bunch of law firms I serviced. And I would get a call, and they'd say, you know, uh, we can't seem to access this one record. Can you find out what's, you know, what has happened? And I, I think I, you know, I don't remember, I don't remember how I did it, but somehow I would kind of dig around, and I would say, oh, I think it's this user. Can you go to their screen and see what they're doing? Um, and, and, you know, we kind of papered it over and, and there was sort of an assumption within the organization that, that again, as I said, the, the best concurrency is the invisible one. And this was not invisible. There was, there was some sense that if somebody was on a particular record or was making a particular change to a customer, um, if somebody else tried to do the same thing, they would, they would 
or even if somebody this was interesting if somebody even tried to look at the record they would kind of get stuck um and they would kind of hang and they would they would get a chance to exit but they were they were kind of stuck waiting so there was a little bit of of uh, sort of lack of pipelining where you had to get people kind of going and normally it worked fine because most people weren't making were changing of a relative small percentage of the database and the odds that somebody else was going to come over was going to be you know pretty rare but but me as a database administrator I often had to make massive change to the database. So I had to change, you know, maybe thousands of records, or maybe every customer I had to do something to. Um, and in those cases, uh, anytime I did say anything big, I kind of knew I didn't want to do that during the day. Uh, these were law firms, so it was kind of easy. It was, you know, the, <laughs> it was before the web really became, you know, the thing where everyone stored their data. So, so everyone kind of went home at six o'clock. Um, and, and in fact, I used to, uh, for practical purposes, I had a very unusual work schedule. So I would often uh, work from, say, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., uh, making data changes because I knew nobody was in the system. And then I would, you know, sometimes that would might go to 11 or 11.30, and then I might get up later the next morning. So my day even practically ended up being shifted, um, you know, maybe three or four hours later because I always needed that window at the end of the day because if I had to do a massive change, I knew I couldn't do it during the day. Um, even reporting was something that often had to be done off hours. So you had to do, um, you know, you had to do kind of uh, large reports. You had trouble running those during the day because they would often interfere with uh, with operations that were going on. Now you could get with small reports, but there were certain reports that are known to be sort of hogs, and and you would run those during off hours. I remember. Uh, often, if I had to do a massive update on something, or this was off. This was like sort of trial and error. You, would, if you did a massive update on something, you had to run it at night. And I remember like r r having running it for forty-five minutes or an hour, and then getting uh, an out of locks message, right? And I was like, oh my goodness, what? How am I going to do this? You know, I'm getting this out of locks message, and I'm not even sure if I solved it that day. I might have had to call my boss the next morning and say. I don't know how to make this change. I'm getting these out of locks messages. What do I would do? And he said, okay, well, the way you need to do it is you need to look at the sequence number of the, of the, of the table, and then you have to do it in chunks. So you have to do, you know, zero to a million uh, in a query, and then make sure you get this right. So if, you know, make sure you don't forget the, the, the boundary. So if it's everything less than a million, you have to make it equal to or greater than a million in your second one. But then less than two million, right? And then two million equals two million or more, but less than three million. And then you had to basically do these in stages at night because obviously you didn't, you know, you you couldn't do it during the day because it would it would cause all sorts of havoc. Um, uh, and I remember, you know, you sort of start the job and you know it's going to take forty five minutes, and you're like, well, what am I going to do for the another next forty five minutes? I I guess I would watch TV or I don't know what I did to read a book because you're just sitting staring at the screen. Uh, at that time, you were dialed in on a modem and, and you were running it, but there was nothing you could do. You couldn't monitor it. You certainly didn't want to touch the database because it was doing this massive operation and anything else might interfere with it. So you made sure nobody was running any reports. You know, you didn't do 
anything extra. You just sort of let it go. And hopefully you got through, you know, you got through that job. So um, I would say, you know, concurrency in some of the databases from the 90s was, you know, it required a little more thought on the on the part of the users. But the administrators really had to understand what was going on and had to do some pretty odd workarounds to make it work. That is insane, yeah. And I think it's funny that you mentioned because obviously, you know, for day-to-day usage from people, they wouldn't see these problems. You say they'd be touching a very small percentage of the database. But as you say, like people like you, database administrators, touching a large set of, you know, the actual database, you're going to get hit these problems with things such as locks and stuff. Yeah, I remember one customer, um, and I got to know these customers very well, and I would be often be on site, and then sometimes I was working from home and sometimes from the office because obviously the hours were just crazy. Um, they weren't crazy long. They were just unusual. You know, every day had a different need for for when you should be on the system. Um, but I remember, you know, it, you know, they were all kind of in cubicles, and you know, you would just get this random, you know, blurb from one of the cubicles. You know, who's in client? You know, <laughs> you know, ABC. You know, and and you know, three cubicles down would say, "I'm in there. I'll be out in you know in 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 twenty seconds." And then you know the other person was able to get in so they they kind of did their own locking in a way <laughs> sort of sort of advisory lock say hey i'm over here and I'm, i'll be out soon um and and reports were often a bigger problem because you had you had um reports would often go through all the customers um so i remember one what would they used to do is they run the reports during lunchtime so there was one customer I remember would send out like a, a message to the staff and they would say, please take your lunch between 12 and 1 where you need to run a report for the end of end of month or something. Um, and you would kind of make sure, you know, people were out, not only not only for the locking conservancy problem, but I think also performance was going to suffer when we run this massive report. And we knew if we ran it with no one in there, we would get through in an hour. Um, and if not, you know, it, we wouldn't. So, um, it was, you know, it, it was, it, we, they may do and then it, it worked, but, uh, it was certainly less than ideal. I think that's a, yeah, less than ideal for sure. But I do love the fact that they did, yeah, their own advisory locking and, uh, kind of got around it that way. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the users are very smart. You know, I remember they used to, you know, it was their job to use this application. So they knew pretty quickly when something didn't work. And they would either ask for advice from me or from the software vendor to try and figure out how they could, you know, get around whatever roadblock was being, you know, put in their way. It was kind of funny. So so you got from this then where, you know, you're locking and you have to kind of orchestrate who's in that record and can I, how do I run this report? I've got to run it, you know, in, at a certain time when it's very quiet. How, how do we get to from that then to where we are now, really? Like how, you know, pro, Postgres runs now. I mean, as you say, like when we're looking at it, you know, typical use cases, we kind of take for granted now the fact that, yeah, we get concurrency and we get, you know, to handle this thing without ever having to really worry. Uh, so what does actually Postgres then use? So... Obviously, you know this this behavior is is sort of the behavior we're describing from the '90s is 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 pretty pretty uh, intuitive. So, yeah, the idea is you have a table with a hundred rows. So therefore, um, you know you have a hundred records stored in the database. And if somebody wants to modify one, well, well we got to stop anyone else from modifying it and we and we also have to stop anyone else from reading it because as we're modifying it 
we don't know if that transaction is going to commit or not. So we don't want to show somebody data that's never been committed. So um, there's the intuitive way to do this kind of database is to have a one-to-one -one mapping. So you have a hundred records and you have a hundred um, you have a hundred rows stored in the database. But that worked when you were working on batch systems where you could sort of feed in one report at a time, right? That works really well because you don't have any concurrency. You're making optimal use of the hardware. Um, but, you know, that really doesn't work well in a, in a dynamic business because different people need information at different times. And you really can't, you know, although batch-oriented systems may be very efficient in terms of reducing locking problems or reducing this type of problem, um, you know, I can't really wait in a queue to find out, you know, what the balance is for a customer when they're on the phone, you know, or they've sent me an email. Uh, I can't really sit behind, you know, 20 different jobs to, to kind of, you know, get through this. Um, and there are some systems still today that, that take a batch-oriented approach, um, to uh, you know, to concurrency, and they allow one person at a time, and you know that obviously reduces the locking, but it, it obviously also reduces the usefulness of the information because the information is not accessible. So, about you know, I guess in the seventies, um, you know, I'm going back quite a bit, but in the eighties, you know, they they started to do research on how we might, how people might make better use of getting the data out of a system where you've got multiple people kind of in there at the same time. And the idea that's really kind of came up and, and has grown in popularity for the for several decades now um, uh, is is something called uh, multiversion concurrency control, which was what Postgres supports. And, you know, it's kind of a fancy name and, and it's kind of a mouthful of words. But, you know, if you kind of break down the wording of, of what it's saying, it's basically saying that um, research has determined that the one-to-one -one mapping of the number of rows in a table to um, to actual storage in the system is really not optimal. That when you have a hundred rows in, you know, logically in a table, if you limit yourself to a hundred physical rows stored in the database, you're always going to have concurrency problems. I mean, that's just by definition. There's no way we can have somebody update a row and also supply read uh, queries with some data because that data is going to be in flux. It's, it can't be really read until it's committed and so forth. And there's all sorts of ways databases used to get around them. They used to allow something called dirty reads, which sounds as you know sounds terrible, but um, effectively would allow you to read data that hadn't been committed yet um, and that may never be committed. Uh, it might be aborted later, um, so you, you you'd have to run reports that potentially return data that wasn't accurate. Uh, and and again, similar to the way that you, people used to work around the concurrency of locking for a record, they would you know they would somehow work around this dirty read problem, and maybe they'd hand the person, the customer, the the you know the user the report and say, we think this is accurate, you know. And, <laughs> but if you really need the right numbers, I'll give them to you tomorrow, you know. I mean, and sometimes that was sufficient. They weren't looking for. You know, but but that doesn't work if you're trying to balance the end of quarter or the end of month. Um, you know, those numbers have to be accurate. Um, so, the way that researchers decide to solve this, they said, you know, instead of overwriting a row when it's updated, let's make a new row. 
And let's keep a copy of the old row around for a while so we can answer queries that don't need to see the new row. So what you effectively have, if you have a table with 100 logical rows, you may have 105 rows physically in the table. If five of those rows are currently being updated, or if five of those rows have recently been updated, and there are transactions that may potentially want to see those older versions of the row. So if you think of your table as 100 rows, it may be 95 static rows, okay, which have one copy, and you may have five rows which have two copies in the same table. Right. I know that sounds really odd and it sounds like something you wouldn't want to do, but because of the research that was done academically and because of the very successful implementations that have been done, it's now clear that having extra copies of the rows for a brief time that you may need to keep those old versions really gets around a lot of the problems that I've outlined previous in this interview that that you got, you know, problems with locking and problems with concurrency and people sort of being stuck and re even read-only reports actually having trouble because they can't get access to some rows that are concurrently being updated. By keeping those old versions around, you are able to actually uh, provide much better concurrency and provide accurate answers in almost every situation. You still have some locking, um, but those locking situations are much more limited now. Yeah, because it, it, it's the whole mantra that MVCC has, which is, you know, readers never block writers and writers never block readers. And it does just sound like the golden ticket, doesn't it? Sounds like this is exactly what we want. And it's actually used in other things like closures, software transactional memory stuff, MVCC. So, I mean, coming out of the research stuff and then now being implemented in things like Postgres, am I right in thinking that it's also, it's in other databases as well? This is obviously now the, the de facto way of, of handling concurrency. Yes, and and I, I you know I would almost say for, certainly for relational systems, and even I would almost guess for non-relational, um, you know this is really the gold standard. This is where you want to be, and some of the databases have transitioned to that. Some of them are in the process of transitioning, however difficultly. Um, some of them may never make the transition uh, for for and it may be for performance reasons too. Um, but Oracle Oracle has had it for many many years. Um, Microsoft uh, SQL has it, but it's disabled by default, which which I think tells me that they were originally a non-MVCC system, and there is some um, quite a bit of re-architecture necessary to, to implement MVCC, and they may have decided that that was not a direction they wanted to go. And similar DB2 has kind of a partial implementation. Um, I, I can go into the details of why it's partial, but it, it doesn't have the full spectrum of, uh, of MVCC capabilities. My uh, NUDB, which is part of my SQL, has it, Informix has it, and Firebird has it. Um, so it is, it is sort of the golden ticket. It does sound really cool. Um, it is hard to, to architect into an existing relational system. Uh, there is overhead involved. Um, there is behavioral changes that potentially could happen. Uh, and, and it does take a lot of engineering to do this, and, and some systems may have been architected so well that they've sort of gotten around this in some other way, and they don't need to go MVCC. 
Um, but certainly, um, it's sort of considered to be the way to go. Um, I think in the old days, maybe when you had very little storage, um, and CPU was at a premium, maybe this had been, would have been too much overhead, but at this point in the, in the game, uh, it's hard to imagine any downsides to really having it as an option. Yeah, that's it now. Exactly. Like space and storage is cheap. Uh, it's all about getting it, you know, concurrency, right. And um, so with with um, like the MVC, so you've got the you've got this idea of the MCC, you know, pattern kind of thing. I would say like it's you know an idea, and obviously the idea needs to be implemented. Um, and you know you've, you've explained how MVCC works from a high level. I'm just wondering like how did Postgres Postgres come about to actually kind of you know decide on how it wanted to implement MVCC? Because I'm, I'm I guess I'm, I'm right in thinking that they all haven't decided on one true way of implementing it, and there's pros and cons of you know different ways. Yeah, it's it is kind of interesting. Um, Postgres originally did not have full MVCC. Um, it was kind of implemented in the first maybe two or three years. Um, it kind of solidified. Um, it had it had some MVCC, but but it wasn't it wasn't full fledged. And by probably 1999 or 2000, it had been sort of fully structured and and implemented Postgres. Um, but you're right. The the idea of how to do it is pretty clear. You keep uh, an old copy of the row around somewhere. Um, and once you do that, you have to have some kind of tag on each row because when you had 100 rows logically and you had 100 rows physically, it was very clear which, you know, row one was row one, right? That was, there was only one version of it. It was there in the table. Uh, we didn't have to do anything fancy, right? Now, given my example, just a minute ago, you've got 100 rows, as I said, 95 are static, right? And five of these rows now have two versions. So you're going to have to identify these two versions in some in some way, right? So is it version one, version two? Is it, you know, version based on a time and a date? Um, how do you identify, because you now have two version, you know, two copies of row seven, let's say, right? How do you figure out which, ver- which one is which? You've got to tag it somehow. You've got to store them somehow. Um, you probably don't want two copies of version of, of row seven around forever, right? Because that's that old row, once that new row commits, so let's say we have an old version, a new version, just to make it simple, you know, eventually that new version is going to commit, or if it does commit, then you have two versions, you have an old and a new, and eventually you're going to want to get rid of the old version, because if you don't ever get rid of the old versions, you end up with, with a lot of, of clogged, you know, you, your table becomes very large for really no purpose. So the, 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 the ideal case is you tag these versions in some way, and you keep around as many versions as you need to supply read-only queries. So again, somebody who's running a financial report uh, may need to see a copy of the old row, and therefore uh, we need to keep that around. Now, once the once all these old transactions finish, and and ten logically nobody should be able to see the old row, we should be able to remove that old row silently. The user doesn't need to do anything; it should just go away, and then we can reuse that space for future updates or future copies of old rows or whatever. Um, different, different databases implement it differently, but that's fundamentally what happens. You, you keep around one or more copies 
of previous rows, and then you uh, sort of silently clean those up uh, going forward. And and again, if you do it well, then nobody really needs to know what's going on, um, either at the database, either at the user level or at the administrator level. And um, you know everyone's happy, and, and Postgres does its magic. So you know, obviously that 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 example you gave there. So you know, someone's running a financial report, uh, and then while they're running that financial report, someone does an update. Um, obviously, in the in the previous in the past, either that update would be like uh-uh, can't happen, or the the select you know with dirty reads or something. It may be a you know improper, in incorrect, or something like that. That may fail. Now, what happens though is both work, but then the select query is using an older representation of say that row that's been updated. Um, obviously, I mean people never really think that. I think people think assume you know they just get the updated version there. Like I guess there's there's always interesting little kind of um, problems to say like maybe if I'm updating a row in one transaction, I'm updating a row in another transaction. I then commit one of these transactions uh, and the other one. What what actually happens in that case? Like kind of these, there is still going to be conflict resolution. Um, resolution, I'm guessing, required uh, in these kind of cases. Yeah, it, it, you still you still have to. Um, somebody's got to make a decision at some point about how to handle that case. And Postgres pretty clearly makes the decision for the user. Um, and, and surprisingly, you know, we don't really get challenged on that. So for example, if you're running a financial report and that's obviously the area I'm most familiar with having written so many of them, um, if you're running a financial report, uh, you want, you want a consistent view of that database at the time the financial report started. So, I mean, the, the, classic, the classic case from database uh, academic literature is a case where you transfer $100 from one account to another account. So, um, you know, let's suppose my, my bank account and my son's bank account are at the same bank and I get online and I transfer $100 from one, you know, from my account to his account. And it, let's suppose at the same time somebody runs a financial report and they want to know how much money's in the bank, what's the total assets of the bank. Well, y- y- there's two anomalies that can happen there, neither of which are, are ideal. Uh, one case would be that the $100 leaves my account but is not identified as being in his account. So $100 kind of disappears, right? So if you gave somebody accurate view of the database at the moment they're reading each row, okay? So if you basically said, I want to see the most recent copy of each row as I touch each row, okay? You potentially have the problem where either you lose $100 because you you see the money has left my account, but you don't see it going into his account, or you see it twice where it's in my account, and then you see it in his account later, and all of a sudden, you're mismatching, you're misreporting how much money's in the bank. Either you're reporting $100 too much or $100 it's not enough, and, not, and both of them are not good. So what Postgres is basically says, it says, okay, when you start a query or potentially even if you start a transaction, and we'll, we can talk about the details of that, we guarantee to give you a consistent snapshot or consistent view of the data. So effectively, in that particular case that I've just outlined with the $100, when you start summing that table, we sort of put a line in the sand and we say, that query has started, it has touched the first row of that table, and then we guarantee that, that user will see a consistent view of that table as it existed when they touched the first row. 
And the only way that's possible is MVCC, and the only way that's possible is to keep around old copies of what my record looked like before the $100 went out of my account, and another copy of my son's record before the $100 went into his account. So we effectively tag each uh, row of Postgres with a, a transaction ID that represents when the row was created and a transaction ID when the row was expired, perhaps deleted, perhaps updated. And because we do that, when we scan through a table, we go through a very complicated uh, set of visibility checks so that even if there's, as again, going back to our example before, if there's two versions of row seven, we make sure that when your query hits row seven, it gets the version of the row that matches the snapshot or that matches the, the state of the table at the time you started scanning that table with row one. Um, so, so that's effectively how all the databases do it. They have a way of marking the um, sort of the time that row was created, the time that row was expired, and then they filter through some of these duplicate rows to make sure that you get a consistent view of the database every time you run a query. And in fact, there's no way in Postgres to get an, an inconsistent view. There's no dirty read is not even supported in Postgres. If you ask for dirty read, you'll get recommitted. Um, there's just no way to even see inconsistent results. But what happened in the in the older pre-MVCC systems, they had to have a way of showing dirty data because a lot of reports just couldn't finish. But because of the way Postgres works, there's no value really to giving you da stale data. We have both rows available anyway. So we just we just always will give you a consistent view. Even if you ask for a dirty read, we will not give it to you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and and so, you know, it's really interesting when you, you know you mentioned like the idea of a snapshot. Um and I'm just wondering, like, kind of how does how does Postgres or MVCC, because in, in, uh, obviously one of the things you did mention in your talk, and I definitely will put that in the show notes, the MVCC unmasked talk you give, uh, you know, kind of explaining the the very scary looking if conditional to work out visibility. Uh, <laughs> it is very scary, uh, but, you know, it works. And I think it's very interesting. You've got like a little comment in there saying, you know, someone's mentioned, they're saying, yeah, this does work. Uh, I've tried, I've tested it, you know, and if you think it, if you think it doesn't work, you're wrong. Yeah, that's um, that is a, that is kind of a hilarious one. Uh, that's actually slide twelve, and uh, I actually know Mike Holson, so it's kind of funny to to read a comment from his younger, much younger years. Um, and and he's it really, I think it captures um, it captures a lot of the sort of angst that we all feel when we do look at this at this at the at the code in this way. Um, that again, one of the goals here, like seeing national anthem is just to make it, you know, just to get up and make it look effortless. Right. Um, but it, you know, it rarely is. And, and when we talk about actually working in the internals of Postgres and tracking these snapshots and tracking, uh, row versions and stamping row versions and so forth, uh, it gets a little, a little sort of mind bending because you, you think of, um, you know, when you look at, at an object on a table, uh, you sort of say, well, either the object's on the table or it isn't on the table. 
right? I mean, I'm looking at my glasses. My glasses are sitting on the table. Um, no matter who comes in the room, everyone will see those glasses on the table, right? I, I can bring a million people in, and they're all going to look and see the glasses sitting there. Uh, what happens with MVC, MVCC is slightly different. So um, because what happens is things are moving around on the table as people are entering the room, and depending on when you entered the room, you may see an object in a different position at the same time that somebody else who's also in the room will not see in that position. So uh, you may have two people both viewing a desk. One will see the glass in one position, and, and, and the other one will either not see the glass at all, or will see the glass in a different position, even though they're both in the table at the same time. And it, it, the real test and the real difference is, that, is the time that they entered the room, because you're basically guaranteeing that when you start a query, or effectively when you start a transaction, you're guaranteeing that you will see the table unchanged at the time you enter the room, even if you don't get to the glasses until 20 minutes later, right? Uh, the glasses may not be there anymore for somebody who's newly entering the room, uh, but for somebody who's been in the room for 20 minutes, they appear there. Um, and that is very odd. It starts, you start to get into, you know, it almost sounds like an Einstein relativity experiment at a certain point um, because you you you're kind of seeing reality is not reality reality is changing all the time and your job as a database administrator is to give everyone a static reality uh, because if you start to give them realities that change uh they can't do their jobs they cannot uh you know they cannot find out how much money was in the bank they cannot um uh, reconcile reports and, and you go back to having to do everything uh, you know single user mode if you want accurate answers and that that really just is is very limiting for for any large organization so with, with some of the snapshot stuff you've you've mentioned kind of that there are different ways of kind of making this snapshot um, and it all depends on like your transaction isolation level I'm just wondering kind of what are the different ways of doing it based on like transaction or query and what are that kind of merits so, as I said before, most people don't really uh, think about this. They just run their queries, and they know they get consistent results, and they just go away, right? But there is a sense that you can um, leverage some of this knowledge to actually make the database more um, more useful. Uh, so, let's let's think of the simple case. So, the simple case is you run a select query outside of a transaction. Postgres has two modes. One, you can run a, a query alone outside in its own transaction, effectively an implied transaction, or you can start a transaction block with begin work um, and, and, and then run a whole bunch of commands together. So let's start the first one. The first one is you run a command sort of in its own implied transaction. Um, the way that works is when the query starts, it takes a snapshot of the database, and um, you know there is there is a slide here. I think it's slide uh, slide number number ten, which which does sort of explain what what types of things are recorded when a snapshot uh, is taken by a query, and that snapshot never changes throughout the entire lifetime of that select statement. And uh, obviously, if the select, when the select statement ends, the transaction ends, it commits whatever. Um, 
And then the next statement, the next select, would effectively take a new snapshot. So again, if you're not using transaction blocks, uh, every select you issue is going to get a new snapshot. And what that means is that if a row is added between the first select and the second select, the first select is not going to see it. We've already talked about the fact that, that MVCC gives you a, a consistent snapshot. So therefore, you never, um, you never see new rows as the query is running, okay? Um, but the, the second select will see the new row, okay? Now, if you use a transaction block, believe it or not, that behaves the exact same way. So if you say begin work and you issue a select, okay, uh, that select is not going to see a new row that gets generated while the select is running. But the second select effectively is going to see the new row. Uh, that was added while the first select was running, okay? And then similar to the third select and so forth, or updates, the same thing, deletes, the same thing. They all follow the same snapshot rules, okay? So that's something people kind of are surprised a little bit about, that, that while you don't see new rows or new changes during a select, by default in Postgres, you're going to see new rows in the next select or the next update or delete. So each new command by default will take what we call a new snapshot. And that new snapshot will control what rows it can see. And by default, those rules will allow it to see changes, any changes that were committed prior to that snapshot be being taken. Now, I said there's a way of leveraging this. If you put your transactions in a transaction block, again, with begin work and commit work, and you issue a statement at the beginning, right after the begin work, to set the transaction isolation level, either to repeatable read or to serializable, what will happen is that you will not get a new snapshot between the first select and the second select, and between the second select and the third select. Effectively, when the first command is issued after the set transaction isolation level uh, for repeatable read or serializable, a snapshot will be taken and the same snapshot will be used for every single query in that transaction block until you either commit it or roll it back. And the reason that's very useful is if you're running a report, you can effectively run multiple queries in that transaction block and guarantee that all of those statements see the exact same data during the entire length of that transaction. That transaction block could run for hours. It could be a huge report, but you're guaranteed that you will not see any data, any new data. You will not lose any data that's deleted that happens during that transaction block. So the command is set transaction isolation level. There is a manual page on it. There is Postgres documentation that covers it in detail. And um, a lot of people find that very, very useful because it does allow you to kind of control when you're getting a new visibility of the database. By default, as I said, Postgres is going to give you new visibility of the database for every new command. But set transaction isolation level allows you to change that. In addition, I've talked a lot about select queries, but if you use serializable mode, trans isolation level, then effectively Postgres will allow you to do not only selects, but updates and deletes. And if anyone changes the database while you're making changes to the database yourself, it'll actually abort your transaction. So it will prevent you from uh, perhaps seeing data that got changed by somebody else 
and you go to change it, and it's like, oh, that could not be done in a serializable fashion, so I'll abort this transaction. And it actually makes it very easy for application developers to not have to worry as much about, for example, select for update. They can actually run in serializable mode and be sure that all of their queries, even if they haven't done the proper locking from one select to the next or from a select to an update or delete, they can be sure that they're actually seeing a serialized view of the database. And if there's some anomaly that would cause a non-serialized view, one of the transactions will be aborted. That's really interesting, really interesting. And and so so with MVCC then, like, are there any cleanup considerations that have to be, you know, because obviously you're saying that we've got all these snapshots and we've got all these different points in time. Like, how do we go about kind of cleaning up or dealing with that kind of case? Yeah, and I, I would say, although a lot of the databases now implement MVCC, I think that the um, the ways that individual systems handle the cleanup is really probably the distinguishing uh, mark between all of them. For example, um, I think the reason um, DB2 only has partial MVCC support is that the length of time at which they will save old versions is fairly limited. And that might have changed uh, in, since I wrote this presentation, but I haven't been informed that it's been changed. Somebody you know, you give a talk at a conference and, and you know, Mr. DB2 expert shows up and, and can answer almost every question you have <laughs> about how DB2 does stuff. So so I have to wait for that next person to come along to make sure these are all accurate um, information. But 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 the 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 real the real bugaboo, the real problem with all of these systems is that is the the threat of of old versions clogging up the system. And um, the the threat would seem to be pretty um, you know, pretty innocuous. But when you think of long-running reports, which may create very long-running snapshots, particularly if they're using repeatable read or serializable isolation level, um, you can't clean up some of these rows that these sessions may potentially want to see. So if you have a financial report that runs for eight hours, you're limited in how much cleanup you can do in that in the database that they're connected to because you don't know what query is coming down the pike that, that might need a copy of a row that was valid seven hours ago or nine hours ago. Okay? And that's really that's really where you get you get caught is is where do you store these old rows so they don't sit around too long and take up too much storage space? Do you place some kind of hard limit on how long they can stay around? And where do you keep them? Do you keep them in the table itself? Do you keep them in some type of area that's separate from the table that has to be cleaned up separately, that lookups have to do separately? Um, and that, that, gets, that gets confusing. And I think all, of them, all the systems kind of do that differently. Um, is is where to keep these rows, uh, how long to keep them, and how to clean them up. So how, how does Postgres do this then? So the way Postgres does it is is I would I would argue one of the simplest ways, um, and and it does allow for some really kind of clean implementation uh, ideas and and some optimizations that that we may or may not get into in this talk. But um, effectively, the way Postgres does it, if you create if you update a row, for example, which is probably the, the canonical case of MVCC, um, we just leave the old row where it is. We just uh, create a new row. 
So, um, you know, if we go back to the example we talked about earlier, you know, row number seven, uh, we currently have one version of row number seven. Somebody comes along and wants to update row number seven. Row number seven. Um, we're just going to leave the old row number seven unchanged as it is, and we're going to create a new version of row seven somewhere else in the table. Okay, and the MVCC rules automatically will filter out the old or the new row. So nobody will see two versions of the row. Every transaction will either see the old version of the row or the new version of the row because each row has enough information that allows us to filter it properly given the MVCC rules of the of the snapshot that's being taken by the individual transaction. So um, – so the only cleanup really for Postgres is we've left the old row in place. We've created a new row. And then at some time later, we need to come around and remove the old version of row number seven, assuming that the new version of row number seven is part of a committed transaction and not an aborted one, and assuming that no old transaction still needs to see the old version of row number seven, we can then blank out that space and make it available for reuse by someone else. So so when does this actually occur then? When do we decide then, okay, now I need to clean this up and, and what actually actions on it? So there, there are actually two, uh, two ways that a row can be cleaned up. Um, and fortunately, both ways are invisible to the user. So users never see this. Uh, they don't have to do anything to make it happen. Uh, administrators also don't have to do anything to make it happen. So, um, you know, in a way, it, it is sort of set and forget. The, the two ways you can do a cleanup is if Postgres is trying to add a row to a specific page. Uh, Postgres has 8K pages stored on disk. And if a page is fairly full, I think it's uh, 90% full, I think, is the threshold. Um, if, a, if, a, if a page is, is fairly full and um, we'd like to put a row on that page, uh, we can do um, sort of a, a single-page cleanup. Um, it, it's called a hot a hot cleanup. I don't know how to explain that, but... Um, Effectively, what we what we can do is is when we're on that page, we can say, you know, we'd like to put a row in this page. Uh, the page is a little is on the full side. It's it's over ninety percent, let's say, uh, full. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the rows on this page, and we're going to look at the current transaction numbers that are are running, and we're just going to remove any rows on this page that happen to be expired, and no one can see them. So the beauty of that system is that effectively, as you're trying to do the insert or the update, um, you're like, hey, you know, this page is looking kind of full. Let me just look through these rows. Oh, look, I've got three rows here that um, are old, are expired. Um, they're no longer visible to any transactions. I'm just going to reorder all the rows on this page. Now, oh, hey, look, I, now I have, uh, you know, 1,500 bytes free that I didn't have before, and I'm going to put the row there. <laughs> um in fact, this happens even during select queries. So it's not even uh, necessary during an update. If a select is looking for a page, um, it potentially can um, can kind of clean up uh, that page and, and kind of get rid of the old rows as it's kind of going through. So it's so low maintenance that effectively nobody even notices it. It, it, it doesn't really show up as something that you would notice the query being slower. Postgres is reading through these rows anyway. 
if you're doing a sequential scan on a table, for example, it's reading the row anyway. It, it has to look at this transaction IDs to determine if that row is visible or not. So why would we not clean it up, right? Um, and and that, that is a tremendously useful feature um, because you can basically clean up stuff real quickly. Now, the problem, unfortunately, is that there are often indexes pointing to that data page, to that row that's been expired. And the cleaning up of the index entries would be very expensive and something we really cannot do during a cleanup of a, of a select, for example. While we're running a select, we don't want to be running around the index doing cleanups. Um, so we have a, a higher, uh, a heavier weight process called vacuum, which uh, is automatically triggered based on how, you know, how much free space is potentially in a page. And it might take several seconds or even a minute uh, for this uh, vacuum process to run. And it's kicked off occasionally by a process called auto vacuum, which is constantly monitoring, monitoring the statistics of the table. It's looking at how many deletes have happened in the table, how many updates have happened to the table. Uh, and it will basically run and it will scan through the table. It'll do a little more aggressive reorganizing of, uh, of some of the table contents. And it'll also so remove any of the index entries that point to these old rows. Um, so the nice thing is that all that happens invisibly. The users don't notice it. Uh, the vacuum process is is fairly lightweight. It doesn't lock anything. Uh, it does consume some I/O, and it's obviously going through the indexes. But um, you know, the large majority of cases, these are these are very uh, lightweight operations, um, and something that really doesn't impact the the system at all. Um, and allows Postgres to run, you know, virtually forever with almost no maintenance, even though we're accumulating old rows and deleting them occasionally. So you mentioned there kind of like some of the internals of how Postgres actually stores these rows. And you said like pages. Um, I'm just wondering, could you maybe like go, go into more depth what you mean by a page and an 8K page and how that kind of works? Yes, that that whole architecture of uh, of storing things in pages and and the and the sort of layout really came from the from the Berkeley folks uh, that we sort of inherited the code from in 1996. Um, the idea is that um, instead of storing your data as a continuous stream, which is probably the way you would normally think of doing it, like you would just have 100 rows and they all be just right next to each other. Right. Um, the idea of Postgres, the idea of most of the relational systems is that the uh, the table or the index are broken up into segments. Um, and the segments have certain uh, housekeeping fields uh, surrounding them. And because they're broken up into segments, you can basically more easily work with the data. So Postgres has, a, by default, an 8K segment or 8K page. So you may have a table that takes, um, you know, let's say 64 uh, kilobytes of, day of, of storage. But internally, that's made up of eight 8K pages. Okay, um, so you know, similarly, if it's it's a 32k table, it's going to be four 8k pages, and each page has a header, it has a, a footer on it, uh, it has item pointers which exist uh, at the beginning of the page, which are pointed to by the index, and then it has the majority of the page is the data itself, uh, effectively uh, individual rows which are stored sort of sequentially within the page. But because of the way they're laid out and because of the page structure, we can move the rows around uh, 
within the page to compact it without affecting, for example, the index or without affecting concurrent access. So that allows us to kind of restructure the page, particularly as we're doing cleanups with single page vacuums or, or, or the more, you know, the more holistic vacuum command with auto vacuum where we're moving stuff around. We can move stuff around within the AK page without really affecting uh, concurrent access, and we can really touch a an individual AK page without affecting access to other AK pages. So we could potentially could have cleanups happening on all AK pages at the same time. So if you have a table with, with five AK pages, you potentially could be doing cleanups on all five simultaneously. That would not be possible, obviously, if you store them all sequentially. You really kind of need a structure around each page and the ability to pull certain parts of the table into main memory without having to bring the whole table into main memory, for example. Um, and this infrastructure around the AK page and so forth allows for the cleanup to happen more efficiently. That is very, very cool. Um, and, and then, so you've, you've mentioned uh, like vacuum, autovac, and you've mentioned the single page vac, uh, like cleanup. There's also another one called vacuum full. I'm just wondering like what, what that actually does then that vacuum or the single page vacuum or single page cleanup, sorry, does. Yeah, vacuum full is more of a, uh, it really came in as an artifact of the original Berkeley implementation. The original Berkeley implementation um did not have this very lightweight type of vacuum operation. Um, effectively, you had to lock the table to do major cleanups, you know, like we're doing now, which it hasn't been true for decades. Um, but, but, but you can think of a vacuum full as va basically a compressed process. Uh, it will basically take the table and completely rewrite the table, uh, removing all free space um, so that it's completely compacted. Uh, but unfortunately, to do that, you have to lock the table. So it's really not an operation you see people doing very often anymore. Um, I mean, they haven't done it for, for decades. Um in the old days, you know, again, in the law firm example, you know, you'd run vacuum full maybe on the weekend when nobody was in the system and, you know, you'd, you'd get back a couple megabytes of space and you'd be all excited, right? I mean, you know, uh, that, you know, it was sort of a maintenance operation that you'd, that you'd run, um, you know, just to clean things up. However, um, if you look at modern Postgres, vacuum full is really only used in, in a case where you've massively deleted huge amounts of data from the table and you never are going to reuse that space. And in addition, the, the data that's, re, that's, that's, that's been cleared out is not at the end of the table, but maybe in the middle or at the beginning. And vacuum alone can't shrink the table down. And you basically have to do some kind of outage for that table. And, you know, basically, you, let's suppose you've got a table that used to have, you know, 100 million rows in it, and now it has 100 rows, right? Um, you can vacuum that all you want. Actually, that case might work because vacuum alone can remove trailing pages. So if, you, if you've got a lot of free space at the end of your table, we can vacuum itself can shrink that down. Um, but if you've got like one, you know, sort of sticky row at the end of the table and, it's, and you've got a huge amount of free space at the, at the beginning um, and you want to reclaim that space from the file system, the only way to do that is vacuum full. Um, so that's the one case where you would have to take an outage for that individual table and lock it and do the vacuum full. And then obviously once it's done, all the re indexes would be rebuilt, the table would be rebuilt, 
and then once that completes, everyone could go back in and, and continue their, their work. You don't see it used very much. We also have a re-index command. Again, that doesn't use, get used very much. Uh, but there are anomalous cases where massive data changes sometimes uh, do require some kind of outage uh, for individual objects. Not for the whole database, but again, for those individual objects, uh, for you to sort of restructure the way they're stored. Um, and that's what vacuum full does, and effectively reindex does the same, but just for indexes instead of for the, instead of doing it for the entire table and indexes together. That's cool. And, and actually, I don't know if you've noticed the project uh, PG Compact um, that kind of goes about so in a vacuum full light essentially that try to mitigate the exclusive locks. Yeah, that's a really interesting project. We used to call, we used to have another one called PG Repack. So there's actually two projects that have kind of tried to do this. Um, they're very interesting. So what they I – mean, remember I talked about the fact that Vacuum um, can trim off empty pages if the empty pages are on the end of the table, right? So if the empty pages are – at the end, when vacuum runs, it can use what we call F-truncate, which is supported by all modern operating systems, which can basically say, you know, this table currently is 100 megs, but I really only want 80 megs of it. So take the last 20 megs and just trim it off, right? But we can only do that if those 20 megs are completely empty pages, and, of course, Postgres knows if those pages are empty, and Vacuum automatically will trim those off. But as I said before, if you've got that one stubborn row, which is out at, you know, byte 98 megs, you can't trim off beyond that one row because you need that row. And Postgres, by definition, will not move that row on its own. What PG Repack and PG Compact attempt to do is to sort of look through the table if it has a lot of free space and look for some of these sort of outlier rows which are sitting at the end of the table and try to transparently migrate those to earlier parts in the table so the truncation can happen more seamlessly. So it's basically trying to move some of the stuff at the end of the row toward the beginning of the table where there's more free space and allowing uh, vacuum to, to then truncate off more of the trailing edge of the table. So that's what those um, attempt to do. It is dangerous. What I mean, it's not dangerous by definition, but you don't want to get that wrong because obviously you're trying to do this while people are accessing the table at the same time. So you have to follow NBCC rules. You have to make sure that your move um, you don't trim it too quickly because you've got to you've got to move the row. Maybe just update the row, um, uh, you know, and change nothing. You're, you don't, maybe you just update the row. You don't change anything, but maybe it has new transaction ID, so you've got to wait for the old transaction ID to go. And sequential scans on the table may be reading that row, so you've got to make sure they don't see the row twice. Um, so the the only complexity there is that uh, those tools really have to understand. The Postgres internals very well to do this safely, um, and it is tricky. I, you know, I guess at some point we could try implementing this inside of Postgres. Um, I'd say the jury's still out on that. We do have a lot of customers I know for Enterprise DB, who's my employer, who who are really excited about this kind of capability. 
Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we want the database to be 100% reliable, and it takes a lot of research to do this right. Um, and I, you know, I guess if it becomes much more popular, we're going to have to try and find a way of doing this in core Postgres where, where we, you know, we have full knowledge of everything that's happening in the system and all the, all the visibility rules and everything. Um, uh, but I, I think the jury's still out on that one. It's, it's a very interesting approach and I understand what they're trying to do. Um, it, it just, it, it's so tied to the internals of Postgres that it can be a little scary sometimes to t sort of move stuff around like that. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's even more than two attempts of, of sort of trying to, trying to reshuffle rows around to make, uh, the trimming, uh, of, of vacuum more efficient. That's really what they're trying to do. Yeah, because I was going to ask, actually, if this is something that Postgres internals or core was kind of thinking about maybe implementing. But like you say, you know, you've got to, it's got, you know, the problems and the issues have got to be weeded out, you know, before it goes into something like the core. Yeah, I mean, we do have a to-do list, which which kind of alludes to that a little bit. Um, there, there's an item that talks about, uh, for example, um, one one of the ideas would be, when you're inserting into a table that has a lot of free space at the beginning, let's say, should we be favoring earlier parts of the table? And the idea would be that if you favor earlier parts of the table for free space, then over time, the later parts of the table would, would be more easily trimmed, right? Would be expired and therefore allow the table to trim. Um, but I, I would almost say we really haven't thought of Postgres at this level yet. Um, it, it's something that's kind of cool, but it's still really an edge case behavior that, that people are doing massive deletes on their table, but they've got like a lot of stuff at the end, which you just, you don't see a whole lot. So um, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think we have a to-do list that we've had down there for a long time to sort of try and be a little more strategic about trying to help the trim operation. Um, and right now, the to-do item really talks about adding new rows, but the idea of, of, of actually having vacuum move rows um, from the end of the table maybe earlier uh, is something that I, I definitely think we could we could take on something like this. Um, this is not a static area. We continue to make improvements. In fact, um, we're working uh, we're working on some stuff for Postgres 10, which would make the uh, cleanup of rows even more aggressive. Uh, and I'm, I've seen uh, some benchmarks, which uh, right heavy benchmarks, would actually increase the post, the improve, actually double the performance of Postgres um, by allowing for more efficient cleanup of multiple versions of these rows. Because right now, um, you can't do single page cleanups if anyone changes an index entry, because the index has to point to the same chain of rows and if anyone changes an indexed column you can't have the, the chain no longer has a unified index structure anymore because the index values change so you're not getting the advantage of these single page cleanups sometimes um, with uh, 
actually uh, the advantage of, of, of actually having one index entry point to a chain of rows, which is another thing I didn't even talk about. Um, but, but, but as I said, when you do an update and you create a new copy of a row, do you need to create a new index entry? And if none of the index columns have changed, you don't, you can actually create a chain of, of versions of a row, which all have to exist on the same uh, AK page, uh, but actually improve performance dramatically, and and we're working to even improve that, so you can have changed index columns and still uh, have a chain of of rows within a single page. So I would say we're still we're you know the, we're still improving this area, and and there's still quite a bit that can be done. I think to make it faster. Um, some of the other database engines have taken different approaches to this, uh, and I think it adds a lot of complexity to the system and it limits some of the optimizations that they can make. So um, uh, it's again, it, no no part of Postgres really sits idle. <laughs> um, we have again some people working on the repack or the reorg uh, or the compact. Um, in fact, I think we have a reorg and a repack and a compact. We have a bunch of things that have tried to do this, and I think yeah, I think eventually it would be an area that we would uh, that we would get into. But I think there even there's even bigger parts that were that we're kind of chewing on for Postgres 10 that I'm um, I'm excited to see. Uh, I think it would be another another real boost to that. Very, very cool. Um, and finally, again, thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, just something you did mention, um, and it kind of goes around with the, the pages, is the idea of like a fill factor and how you can tweak that to manage it, you know, performance and size of your database. I'm just wondering, maybe you could just like kind of like a, give a brief overview of what the fill factor is and how that helps. Yeah, that's a that's really a great uh, a great example. A lot of a lot of people assume that um, the best the most the best way to get performance of their database is to hundred percent fill all of their pay all of their tables, and and they're probably also thinking hundred percent of their indexes. So they would think that the best case would be hundred percent table fill, put as many rows in any page as you can. And 100% fill factor of your indexes, which means put as many index uh, entries in an AK page as possible. But the fact is that that's, that's not optimal for, for a couple reasons. Um, for indexes, it's pretty clear. Uh, what happens when you 100% fill an index is that it's the first time you need to add a row to a particular index page, you have to split it. Okay, So if you 100% fill factor your indexes, then the, the very first insert that has to put a row in that index is going to have to is not going to find a room in that page is going to have to split that page into effectively two 50% filled pages okay and that's going to happen for every fill page in that index until they all split <laughs> now if you have a read only database where you're not doing any inserts that might be fine Okay, but by default, Postgres knows for a read-write database that's not good. So Postgres, when it creates indexes, I think it has a seventy percent fill factor, and that's because we know that people don't want to be page splitting the minute they go to do an insert. 
And frankly, two 50% filled pages is worse than one 70% filled page, right? Because obviously 50% filled of two pages is, you know, you're, 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 you're really under a 70% full factor at that point. So indexes by default, pretty much all the vendors don't fulfill their pages because, unless it's a read-only database because they know that as soon as you have to put an entry on a page, you're going to split. Now, with Postgres, it's a little different because we can always expand the table, right? Because remember, index table, index pages, you know, if you have an index page for, you know, A to F, you got to put it there. That's the only page that contains A to F. You've got to put the entry in that page. And the only way you can do that is to split the page and then, you know, have A to C and D to F or whatever. Okay, so when you're doing index inserts, you really don't have a choice of where to put the row. It's got to go where the index tells you to go. That's not really true with with uh, with tables. Again, you can you can say, okay, every insert we create a new page on the end of the table, we put it there, right? So that would you had seen that would work fine. And in fact, Postgres by default uses a hundred percent fill factor uh, for for tables. The problem though is regarding this this chaining, these these hot updates, which I kind of talked about when I talked about single page vacuum. Um, when you're going to update an individual row um, and you don't want to create new index entries, the only way you can do that is if you put the new row on the same 8K page as the old row. And if the 8K page has no free space, you can't put it on there because it's full, right? So either you have to delete some data, which you can't do at the time you're doing the update, or you have to go and create a new update somewhere else, and then you have to create a new index entry, and now all of a sudden you can't do this type of single-page cleanups if, as efficiently as you could do if the page had some free space on it. So you would kind of think that, well, maybe I should create my tables not with 100% full factor, and a lot of people who are doing heavy update, upload, heavy update loads will do that. However, if you don't do that, what effectively happens is that rows that get a lot of updates end up migrating to the end of the table, and they also end up being placed on pages that are virtually empty. So the good news is that what happens in a database that has 100% fill factor for tables, uh, over time, your updated rows will migrate to empty pages because they will not fit on the full pages. And by definition, those pages that they're put on have a sufficient amount of free space. And therefore, we will able to be able to do the type of hot updates that are very easily cleaned up on those sort of outlying pages. So what effectively happens when we implemented hot, I guess, 12 or 10 years ago, and we sort of thought about how this was going to behave, and we realized that effectively what happens is that the uh, the, the updated rows end up migrating to the pages that have a lot of free space. And the rows that aren't changed or aren't updated effectively probably just remain in the, that 100% full factor page and either never change or, or rarely change. Uh, maybe they get deleted and then some free space frees up. Um, but uh, if you think of the way a table kind of looks on disk, you probably have maybe 90% of your rows are pretty static and don't change a lot. And probably you have those 10% of customers or 10% of products that are just changing all the time. Um, and those end up being on pages that are 
primarily have sufficient free space to allow you to do those hot updates. Um, and there's probably also the pages that end up being in the cache. Uh, so we've found that even people who don't change the fill factor for their tables uh, end up they, – they probably do not get good performance initially when they load their database and they start doing updates. But within a short period of time, those high update rows have migrated to pages that have sufficient free space, and the system starts to work a lot more smoothly. The cleanup happens starts to happen a lot more efficiently, um, and they get very very good performance at that point going forward. That's really, really interesting. And again, thank you so much, Bruce, for taking the time out to, to discuss all these things. I think it's, as I said, like at the beginning, it's so interesting learning more of the internals of a database and, and that it, things aren't just magic, you know, that they, there is a reason and a, you know, a way that they work. And, and, it's, and sometimes it's really good to kind of at least understand kind of at a high level and then obviously sometimes be geeky and want to learn at a low level why these things happen. Um, but yeah, as I say, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because there's just so much thought that has gone into these, into this, and and obviously because Postgres is is developed in an open source manner, you have you know thousands of people who are always sort of putting their two cents in or giving their ideas about how a certain thing should be implemented or how a certain thing will behave under certain workloads, uh, and you're always learning from them. You're always saying, oh, gee, I didn't thought, gee, that would yeah, I guess that would be a problem or, oh, that would work really well if we did it this other way. Um, so you really get access access to some really, really smart people and and people who are thinking deeply about these type of of, uh, of behaviors and different ways of implementing things. Uh, and, and when you finally are done and you actually ship a, ship a, a final version, there are so many people, people's ideas sort of intertwined in in the actual implementation that goes out that you know really one person doesn't do it It, it's it's really an amalgam of of many many people who have all given small ideas that kind of built on other ideas that were earlier you know it happened with it happens within a year uh you know of when a feature gets developed and and actually pushed out uh but so many people make so many ideas um, and each person advances it just that small amount uh, that when you get to the final uh, feature that gets shipped out, you know, it has an incredible amount of polish on it. And there's sort of an incredible amount of thought that goes into how this is going to behave in, in so many different uh, workloads uh, that it's surprising how, how really, you know, kind of spot on you end up being. Because at the time you're going through it, it feels as though there's, you know, dozens of, of roadblocks where this is not going to work well, and, and you basically you overcome each one with, you know, with with sort of intense discussion within within the, the groups. Uh, but when you finally get to the end and and nobody has any improvements to make, uh, and nobody has any ideas that would make it better, uh, you're like, okay, we're done, let's go, and and it, it gets shipped out and it goes into production and and you find that yeah we really did hit everything um you know we're not perfect but um it's amazing how complicated some of this stuff is and it's amazing how close the project gets to really hitting almost every uh area uh that needs to be you know sort of polished uh to to make it function well in production environments 
Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, like this is the beauty of like open source where everyone's working together for a common goal. Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much again, Bruce, for taking the time to come on the show. And uh, audience, uh, I think this is a good place to wrap up for another great episode. And uh, I'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.